you know, everyone thinks, you know, Ryan Gosling's great as Ken, but don't forget he was an absolute liability at cornerback and remember the Titans. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I mean, he was young in that shit. What was that, like late 90s, early 2000s? 2000, yeah. yeah. And have you guys seen Lars and the Real ago. Girl? The sex yes, doll movie. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Saw it, just disposable piece of totally. garbage. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Aren't people weird? It's one of those yep. movies, yep. you know? <laughs> nah, fuck that. Yeah, a lot of that going around back then. That'd be a funny topic. Aren't people weird? The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. That's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome back to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts. My name is Andrew Stasulis, and I'm joined here today with... Eric Marsh. And... Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us selects a topic for the week, an idea. And the other two hosts are challenged with putting together a double feature that meets that topic, plays with that idea, challenges the topic, brushes up against the topic. We've had it all. We love it all. It was my turn to pick the topic this week. And, you know, folks, I don't know where you are, but where I am, where Marsh is, and, well, I can assume where, where most people in the United States or perhaps around the world are, it's fucking hot. It is hot. It's hot out there. It's so hot. We all walk around. We all walk around, dude. It's hot! <laughs> and, you know, um, I, was, I was looking for a way to cool down. Because, boy, we've been, we've been sweaty lately. And uh, so I was sort of trying to think of, like, um, a, a cinematic mode that invokes cool temperatures. And, you know, we've done, like, water. I know we've done previous episodes on snow and stuff like that. So, you know, that, that territory we, we've covered. Um, so I was trying to just think more of, like, a mindset. And I came to... Uh, you know, what is maybe an odd choice for summer, but that is a, a genre, I guess you could say, or a subgenre that to me invokes cold feelings, and that is haunted houses, you know? I, I picture drafty old mansions uh, haunted by specters, right? You can hear the wind howling outside, uh, making the, the windows creak and rattle. And so I asked the boys to to help me out, to, to, to bring my body core temperature down with some spooky haunted houses, some drafty, cold, haunted houses. And that is what we got. We got some some very some very chilly, drafty, spooky vibes this week. A nice double feature. I had not seen either film. Uh, one I had 
heard of. One had been recommended to me for, for many years. Another one was completely off of my radar. So, so that's a, a double feature I love. You know, it's, it's something I've been meaning to see and something I didn't know I wanted to see. And, and that's what the, bro, the boys delivered. So we might as well just dive right in, cross the threshold into these, these chilly haunted houses. Um, Marsh... You had the earlier film, so why don't you tell us what you brought? But I think you also have something else to tell the listeners. Yes, before I introduce my film, I just want to remind everyone that you can always email us questions, comments, suggested double bills, anything to Marsh's mailbag at gauntletmoviepodcast.com. At gmail.com. We got a great email this week. You've That's why I'm mail. bringing it up. And we're going to read that at the end of the show uh, because it also sort of dovetails into uh, our topic for next week. So, Ooh. again, folks, gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Send us things. Are we still on X? Are we still doing... Uh... Oh, man. Yeah. Well, you know, for, for the time being. We're, we're treading water. Yeah, yeah. Gauntlet X. We don't got to get into that. Um, Sorry. Anyway, yeah. So uh, about the film, yes. Um, you know, I was poking around, and I wasn't really satisfied with what I was finding in terms of more conventional haunted house films uh and all of a sudden this film popped into my head because it was something that i uh had been thinking about watching completely independent of of the podcast uh and it's a film that has a sort of twist on the haunted house uh you know tale as it were um and that film is the ghost and mrs muir or Murr. From 1947, directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Uh, this film stars Gene Tierney as Lucy, or Mrs. Muir, uh, who is, had recently been widowed, and she wants to strike out on her own and be an independent person. And so she leaves her mother-in-law and sister-in-law and takes her daughter and her maid, Martha, uh, to White Cliff on the Sea, uh, a sort of seaside town in England. Uh, this all takes place uh, around 1900. It opens in London and quickly uh, we're swept away to the countryside. And uh, of course, she uh, sees in the sort of real estate booklet this very cheap house. And of course, it's cheap because it's haunted. And so she moves in there with her daughter and her maid, and very quickly, uh, the ghost reveals himself. And instead of being scared and running away, uh, Lucy, who's a very strong, independent woman, uh, talks shit to the ghost and strikes up a friendship and ultimately a romance with this spectral figure played by Rex Harrison, who is a, uh, of course, dead sea captain, Daniel Gregg, who uh, accidentally died uh, in his house and sort of wants to set the record straight, which is why he's still uh, around haunting it. His death was ruled a suicide, but God damn it, it was an accident, you know? <laughs> he didn't want to go out like that. 
Um, so yeah, that's really the twist. I don't want to get too much more into it, but it's a very chilly seaside kind of thing until, of course, the hot passions of uh, love and romance rear their head. And instead of, uh, yeah, taking us to a spooky direction, we go in a very sad, tragic, melancholic direction with this sort of cursed romance between someone who is living and someone who isn't. Uh, This film was made by Fox, and it has uh, a sort of murderer's row of uh, Hollywood legends uh, on the sort of technical side of things. Cinematography by Charles Lang, who shot The Long Gray Line, The Big Heat, a bunch of other shit, one of the greats. Uh, Dorothy Spencer cut it. She also cut for Ford, My Darling Clementine, and Stagecoach, uh, and some other stuff. And of course, we have Bernard Herrmann on the extremely prevalent music throughout, <laughs> throughout this film. Bernard's going off as uh, he usually does. Um, it's also got a screenplay by Philip Dunn, who wrote How Green Was My Valley. So everyone here, a veteran Ford contributor, which you know I appreciate, certainly, but really just like people who are really good at what they did, uh, in addition to Mankiewicz at the head of this thing. Um, It followed a sort of ghost cycle in the 40s that I believe sort of started with Blythe Spirit, the Noel Coward uh, thing. And there was like, you know, a whole bunch of sort of ghosts, not like horror, you know, different kind of ghost movies, ghost comedies happening at this time. Uh, And we can talk perhaps about where this film sits in relation to uh, the big war that just had happened. Um, And in fact, the book was a huge hit in 1945, the last year of the war, uh, written by Josephine Leslie, who wrote under a pseudonym R.A. Dick, (laughs) which is awesome. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I like that a lot. But it was a huge hit as a novel, and so, yes, it became... Uh, this, you know, big Fox film that played in in England and in the United States and did very well. Um, And it also stars George Sanders, as we will certainly discuss (laughs) as he enters the picture. Um, So yeah, that's that's My Haunted House, uh, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir from 1947. Thank you, Marsh. Ryan, how about your film? I knew I wanted to find something gothic. That was my first instinct when you mentioned a creaky, drafty, dusty haunted house. And it's funny because last week, or the last episode we did, I also highlighted Mexican cinema. And I was thinking about how, you know, who also really loves the gothic in horror, well, also the golden age of Mexican cinema, that boom. And I was familiar that there was like a movement of a lot of horror films from the era, and I really haven't seen much of any of them. I've had a few of them on my watch list. I'd been interested in a while. And the film I ended up going with was a film that had sort of like just been there on the back burner on my radar, something I was interested in, knew some people liked it. And I thought, what the heck, let's let's do it again. And folks, you know, I don't pick a film next week, but after that, who knows? Maybe I'll figure out a way to round out my border trilogy, as uh, Andy <laughs> joked when I, when I picked this film. So we'll see. We'll see where I go. 
But yeah, I mean, when I think about a haunted house, that is what I think of the Gothic. Something feels very quintessential about it. So I decided let's look at a haunted hacienda. Let's look at some dry wood, uh, studio-bound Mexican golden era cinema. So the film I selected is either from 1961 or 1963, depending. It seems like it was officially released in 63. It is called The Curse of the Crying Woman, directed by Raphael Belladon. The film centers around the sort of legend of Mexican folklore, La Llorona, who is a woman in, in the traditional story was uh, after her husband had cheated on her in a jealous rage, she drowned her children. And she is someone you can hear wailing often by bodies of water. This is a figure of folklore I have been like a little bit familiar with, not like particularly studied upon. I remember she got Blumhoused a few years ago. There was like a La Llorona film that had come out. And there are a lot of cinematic representations of, of this legend. And funny enough, the year before this film was shot, there was another La Llorona film that came out, directed by Rene Cardona, the man who directed oh, Batwoman, which yes. we did on the last episode. So, Gotta check that out. Really prevalent around, and people, you know, people knew who she was, you know, like a big, a big figure. And so this film is definitely a riff on the idea. It doesn't really spend a lot of its time focused on the origins of this myth, uh, but instead it's used sort of like as window dressing for other gothic excursions around this haunted hacienda. So the setting of this film is uh, a gloriously foggy, studio-bound uh, forest with the, with the hacienda in the middle of it, and kind of skipping over the way the film is introduced, I'll just note that Generally, there are a lot of mysterious crimes that are happening in the area that is really befuddling all the police officers. They visit the home who is uh, living there is this woman named Selma, and they're like, well, you know, what's going on? There's lots of crimes happening around, right out on the road, right by your place. And she's, she's like, I got no idea. I'm clueless. And they are too. And really things kick into gear when Selma's niece is returning to, to the home. She's been away at university, um, I believe overseas for quite some time, and she's come back to visit with her husband Jaime. And she hasn't heard much from her aunt in quite a while. Aunt Selma has uh, been repeatedly mentioning, please don't come back home. But things are a bit off when she arrives at home. Things are a bit mysterious. All the original servants are gone, and instead we're left with a man who is like a two-faced monster with a giant shoe that shuffles around the home, saved from being hanged. He's a disreputable type. Juan. <laughs> yeah, Juan. And there's, yeah, lots of mysterious things. There are scary bats, you've got uh, hairy hands hanging out of doors, you got everything. You got everything you can imagine in a gothic haunted house like this. And Aunt Selma is harboring a very dark secret in the basement that links her and the whole family to the curse of the crying woman. We'll get into the details of that as we go on. It's a really fun film. It does evoke Universal monster movies from the 1930s, but has that nice element of being something from the 60s, so they could be a little bit nastier. There's some nice little blood. There's just some brutality in it that you wouldn't see in something from that era. It is a film that is primarily soaked in atmosphere, and it's like an atmosphere-forward film. Uh, 
But because of that, sometimes some other things fall by the wayside, such as just developing tension, I guess. I don't know. It's a film that's very evocative, but it's also one that really never actually kind of feels frightening for, for a viewer. But you can't say the film doesn't deliver. It's got a little bit of everything. It has uh, a hell of a climax, if one, again, that kind of just goes on forever and loses all its tension. But there's spectacle. <laughs> it, it's a visual feast. It's full of surprises, and I had a good time, and I'm excited to talk about it. So that is The Curse of the Crying Woman. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you both. Um, I guess for me, I, I think the the best way for for me to, to sort of enter into discussing these, well, I found it to be uh, anyway, was actually by, by dusting off um, my copy of... Gaston Bachelard's The Poetics of Space. Now, I'm pretty sure that, Ryan, you're familiar with this because you took my time, space, and memory class, and this is probably <laughs> a long time ago for you. It but was. I did have a chapter of this book as assigned reading when we were talking about the home, the space of the home. And it's, it's a, a lovely book. It's a, a really... Um, I think a, a beautiful text on um, the the phenomenon of space and how we experience space. And so I thought I'd sort of, in thinking about haunted homes, I'd, I'd dive back into there. And I, I found a, a passage that I think really sums up nicely sort of what his book is about, but I think it's, it's the way that I've often... Um, sort of interacted with haunted house movies. It's, it's, I think the reason why I, I find them to be so, um, enriching and enduringly sort of a part of, of the human psyche. So I'd like to begin with just sort of reading a little passage of this, um, in, in it, he's sort of, again, like basically trying to sum up his argument about, you know, how we experience homes and why homes are mm -hmm. so important to, to our consciousness. Now, my aim is clear. I must show that the house is one of the greatest powers of integration for the thoughts, memories, and dreams of mankind. The binding principle in this integration is the daydream. Past, present, and future give the house different dynamisms which often interfere at times opposing, at others stimulating one another. In the life of a man, the house thrusts aside contingencies. Its counsels of continuity are unceasing. Without it, man would be a dispersed being. It maintains him through the storms of the heavens and through those of life. It is body and soul. It is the human being's first world. Before he is cast into the world, as claimed by certain hasty metaphysics, man is laid in the cradle of the house. And always, in our daydreams, the house is a large cradle. A concrete metaphysics cannot neglect this fact, this simple fact, all the more, since this fact is a value, an important value to which we return in our daydreaming. Being is already a value. Life begins well, it begins enclosed, protected, all warm in the bosom of the house. You know, I think about why haunted house films, right, again, are just so, so uh, 
unsettling for so many people. And I think it's like, it's really summed up well in this passage. You know, to us, the home is supposed to be the essence of safe space, right? It's our cradle, as Bachelar says. It's this place where we grow, where we nurture. The world outside our home is a violent, disordered, chaotic place filled with threats. But the home, the interior of this space, a cradle, right? That is is supposed to be the utmost uh, uh, area in which we feel protected. And to me, the nature of haunted house films, right, is this ultimate then corruption, right? The call is coming from inside the house, you know, that kind of shit, right? It's like, no, if we're not safe in our very own home, where are we safe, right? And so countless haunted house films play upon this idea. But I think these films are doing something a little bit differently. And in fact, I, I, I think The Ghost and Mrs. Murr um, is really kind of invoking this passage, right? Because we have a very different sort of experience of this haunted home. Uh, it's, it's almost a total inversion of your typical sort of feeling you get from these kinds of chiller films. And I think you described that very well in your, in your introduction. But I think maybe a good point of entry then is to, to sort of explore like what these films are doing with these spaces, with these houses, these homes. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I actually think it's a way you can link both of these films because there are characters in each film that are controlling elements of the hauntings themselves. In The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, obviously, the ghost is the one haunting the home, but very early on in the film, Mrs. Muir makes it clear that she's kind of developing some ground rules that they're collaborating on. You know, she doesn't flee at the thought of a haunted house. Again, like her first reaction is, Haunted. How perfectly fascinating. And even when she's confronted with the specter of the ghost, you know, she, she meets it. And she decides, like, let's see if we can work something out here. And they develop a set of rules and how things are going to work. So she doesn't reject the haunting right away. And then in The Curse of the Crying Woman, you know, Amalia, the niece, she's coming to visit her aunt. It's her aunt's home. And I did see a description that mentioned the ideas that Amalia is, like, inheriting this home. And that's uh, part of it. I, I didn't pick that up in the film. It really doesn't feel like there's any sense that this is going to be her home. So if you read The Curse of the Crying Woman as a haunted house film, the haunt is controlled in this instance by someone who lives in the house. It's her home. And I mean, of course, there's the, you know, the, the rotting corpse in the basement that might be <laughs> <laughs> pull, pulling some yeah. of the strings in like Grandma's a spectral way. Grandma's the best killer of them all. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, totally. Yeah, but no, I think that, that there's something there too where the rules of the haunting are dictated by uh, like lead figures in both of these films. And in a sense, especially with Curse of the Crying Woman, it's, it's Aunt Selma's her own cradle uh, for her haunting. She's the one controlling everything in, sen in the sense of the hauntings that are attacking Jaime and her niece. And you know what's interesting? Not to you know, necessarily just dig in on this point or, or, or get you know, far ahead of ourselves, but in the book, Bachelard goes on to sort of 
really kind of break down the interior of a house and, and make these kinds of statements or readings of various rooms and, and what mm. these spaces kind of represent or our feelings that we often associate with them. And in his like kind of phenomenological breakdown of the home, he sees a big distinction between like the attic and the basement, right? The bowels of the house and as he puts it, the sort of like brain of the house, the attic. And I think in both of these films, we see kind of then the opposite ends of the spectrum of that, right? And I think it invokes then the two different again, like feelings or vibes or experiences these films bring to us. As you've described with The Curse of the Crying Woman, right? It's within the basement, the dungeon that is the essence of this home's, like, rot, essentially. But in The Ghost and Mrs. Mirror, it's upstairs, and it's in a very different room altogether. Maybe we could describe that as another the bedroom. Of, yeah, yeah, right? Where again, the the essence of the haunting takes place. Yeah. And I think that's of course key to what the film's all about with the developing relationship between uh, you know, Captain Greg and and Lucy is yeah, it's in the bedroom, right? And the bedroom in particular is a, a beautiful, just layered set. And it's, you know, probably the most used location in the film. Um, and it doesn't really get, it didn't really get dull to me, like being in that room, because there are a lot of dolly shots and there's great depth. There's huge windows, right? Mm -hmm. Because, of course, Captain Greg was a sea captain. He has a telescope and these huge bay windows. And she also hangs up... Uh, the painting of him on the wall and paintings, of course, crucial in both films mm -hmm. here. Uh, you know, he's on the wall like he's her husband, you know, basically. Uh, and they spend so much time in there and the foggy porch out front. I mean, it's a really dynamic space. And I think too, like Andy, to, to what you were reading, you know, it made me think, as well, that like the home for for Mrs. Muir is not just uh, a place of safety, but it's like uh, it's her independence, right? It's the yeah. symbol to her that she can live on her own. The film starts. It's like I'm out of here. My husband's dead, um, and you get the sense that her life starts now. You know, um, like so many women who had to, yeah, be the wife to, to some bum or whatever. You know, this guy was like a shitty architect, as she claims. Like, oh, poor Edwin. Yeah, he was just, it's just kind of whatever, you yeah, know? Yeah. Uh, and then he croaks, and she's like, all right, my life starts now. And she takes the gold dividends from, <laughs> from the mine <laughs> uh, and, and gets this, you know, overgrown kind of like dump. I mean, it's beautiful. It's an amazing seaside cottage. But it was built by a seaman, so I, I don't know how what's going on inside, you know, like the sort of architecture there, but yeah. it is a beautiful house. And for her, yeah, it's her autonomy, you know, and that's so crucial to the whole thing and why, yeah, they sort of build, build this kind of like family in a sense. Yeah. Uh, there again, it's, it's in Bachelard's terms, right? It's a, a, a ideally a space for daydreaming. And that's certainly what she's, 
going to be doing. You know, yeah. she, the minute she lays eyes on this, she sees it as you described as this, like this, this possibility for herself. And, you know, again, much to the, to the, the consternation, I guess, of the, the, the realtor, <laughs> you know, she's just like, I want it. I'll take it. In fact, like, I, again, I don't want to like drift too far here. Um, but you know, I would say again, just an overall kind of experience of the film was, um, uh, probably one of the, the, like the more horny ghost films or haunted house films I've seen. And I mean, I've seen a few, but like, I mean, she is, when she hears about this ghost, when she's like first looking at the house, I mean, she looks almost like turned on by this prospect like a ghost. I mean, she finds it to be quite arousing in, in many different respects, like that, that she's, she's excited by this, this prospect, you know, she doesn't even want to look at the other houses. Like she just wants this one. It's true. This is interesting because the more you're describing the ghost in Mrs. Muir, the more I'm thinking about the curse of the crying woman. And if we read the curse of the crying woman as, you know, Selma being the protagonist of it, even though it's kind of really Amalia's story. But if we think of the aunt and what she's looking for, you talking about Mrs. Muir, Lucy looking for autonomy. Correct. I mean, that's absolutely what Selma is looking for. She's you know, mm-hmm. interacting with the Lady of Darkness so she can get her own divine omnipotence. You know, that's her end goal. And even thinking then, too, about the architecture of the space, there's definitely a way you can interact with the Curse of the Crying Woman if you take, like, the gendered reading of the film in the sense of, like, how everything's laid out and where the rooms are. Because, yes, it's in the basement, which, you know, in, like, mythology, often that's, like, the woman's den. And if we're looking at this as, like, both Yannick and then phallic imagery, of course, you know, the man's up in the tower. But in this case, the man up in the top of the tower is, like, a a weakling eunuch man. (laughs) He's been, like, totally... The good doctor. (laughs) Yes, exactly. But I hadn't really... That hadn't clicked for me, I guess, when thinking about these films next to each other, partially because watching them last night, especially Curse of the Crying Woman, feels like a daydream, or at least a night terror to me, the way it plays on my memory. But there is definitely something about both of these films sharing woman looking for autonomy uh, within the spiritual world, uh, just with radically different approaches. <laughs> yeah, I I was honestly through most of Curse of the Crying Woman reading it as Selma's film, right? As the ant's tragedy as opposed to Amelia and Jaime's success. I mean, <laughs> we'll get into that marriage. My god, I want to talk about that guy. But oh, um, yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah, I I think that's, yeah, I mean, she's going off, right? Like, it's a very expressive performance. It's playing to, you know, the big theater of the era, and she's got no fucking eyes. I mean, I think now (laughs) we can start with uh, what you omitted in your uh, description of the film, which is uh, a very, very startling and, and amazing opening. Yeah. And I really liked how, yeah, how just like hardcore that opening was to set the tone. Um, this is a film that looks like a universal horror film. Sherman even saw me watching. He was like, oh, this looks like a universal film or whatever. <laughs> and like, yes, it's, you know, they've got the wind machines. They've got dolly tracks. Um, 
But then there are these outbursts of violence that go beyond the code, right? You know, and certainly it's Mexico. They had different, I'm sure they had different, you know, laws, censorship rules, whatever. Um, but it opens with a murder, right? And we see the crying woman, uh, or really Aunt Selma, uh, as the her version of the crying woman with Juan, the menacing butler, fake butler, yeah. uh, with his like hat and shadowy, disfigured face, and they're just waiting to sabotage this like stagecoach or buggy that's rolling through the forest. I I I was kind of like laughing, and there's 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 some really great moments in this movie of like very un intentional humor to be found that, that just yeah. are, are such a delight and yeah in this opening sequence the the, the first thing that that made me like kind of crack up is yeah you've you've got this carriage of, of you know travelers and buffoons buffoons yeah and there there's two guys who look like identical twin brothers just like yucking it up in the back of this stagecoach and they're of course spinning the yarn of this cursed area that they just so happen to be traveling through that this is essentially like not a good area. And everyone seems to know that except for this, this poor woman who's in the, the carriage. Um, and as they're like traveling, uh, you know, one and, and Selma who are planning to ambush the, the, <laughs> the, the stagecoach or whatever, like their method of stopping it is that one just sort of steps out into the 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 road or trail or path or whatever and waves his arms in the air. But there's a very important detail that as he's like waving his arms in the air, he's holding this huge fucking Bowie knife. And he's like waving his <laughs> arms like, stop, stop. And I was just thinking like... Don't stop. If you're a stagecoach driver, yeah, like, you probably got one job, right? And that is to, to recognize trouble ahead. And a man with a disfigured face stepping out of the darkness in this cursed area, waving a two-foot fucking, like, Bowie knife in the air. That's a pretty good indication that you should just keep going, right? Not stop. But, of course, he stops. And that's when the real trouble begins that we all saw coming. And, the, I guess, the twin brothers in the back, they saw coming as well. But, yeah, that is a... A very vi surprisingly violent opening that concludes with this woman just getting brutally like run over twice yeah. by the carriage itself. Yeah, like, and something that's interesting, a little bit of trivia I learned um, with the woman who was ran over by the carriage, that actress is the real-life daughter of the woman who plays Aunt Selma. Oh, wow. And I did think it was interesting while watching the film and having just, you know, like a little bit of familiarity with La Llorona that the film doesn't really engage with that quality of the myth about the woman who in a jealous rage does drown her own children. Mm -hmm. It's like a bit confusing when they actually kind of go into the mythologizing of this, this figure, the crying woman. But I did think then wow, I don't know if this was like accidental or just weird happenstance, but it still kind of creates that feeling knowing that element that the film starts with uh, a woman <laughs> murdering her real-life daughter on screen by like having her Dobermans go after the men and then having a carriage run over her daughter. Yeah, getting cut in half by a wagon wheel. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I love that set. This film has like such a great quality where I love when in a black and white gothic film that the forest, the trees cast shadows on the wall that then 
try to evoke this doubling of the force they're like well it'll give the force depth like who cares like it's also kind of just necessity low budget but i like the way that looks how they then look like trees in the distance this film really it just doesn't disguise the fact that it's a set and i don't know if they were trying to but it it has such a nice quality at the beginning where you feel like you are entering in to like a cinematic world like this that only exists in cinema. Yeah, but in both films have like big front halls too to these houses. And it's, yeah. you know, in uh, what you're sort of describing, like the Hacienda, um, God, it reminded me almost of like the passion of Joan of Arc, you know, like everything's sort of just like slightly off, you know? So to your point, Ryan, I think they are working in a, a gothic expressionist mode where, yeah, it's not realism it's uh it's what it is yeah. you know this haunted yeah. hacienda that's all like it's cro- state of mind crooked and weird and has like a cauldron at the bottom of the stairs you know <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah again you know it's like just getting into that you know like poetics of space right the the foyer the entryway to our home is supposed to of course like set the tone for our guests and for anyone that's entering the space. And yes, when you enter this space, there is no question about it that this is a very, 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 very cursed and very bad place to be spending any amount of time. I mean, it is, it is gross. I think there's like cobwebs everywhere. And yes, it's, it's very noisy. It's noisy. Everything's askew. It is a, it seems like a massive uh, uh, like a massive height to get from from the first floor to the second. I mean, into <laughs> the bell tower, my God! Into the bell tower, yeah. This is a very like it seemed like a very narrow but very like elongated, very tall space with a big, just sort of like open, yeah, like cave-like entry into the home. Yeah, and, you know, Juan the servant isn't necessarily the most, like, welcoming person. If you're, like, visiting a home for the first time in quite a while, you know, expecting a a group of familiar faces and having that guy kind of, like, silently welcome you in the home. A funny thing I noticed with both of these films is that the characters in them are, like, weirdly anti-servant or just like say a lot of like anti-servant sentiment. I mean, yeah. so Amalia is like missing her aunt's older servants and she is like so horrified when she sees Juan. And I think at one point when the aunt mentions like, oh yeah, that you must've just like met Juan at the door. And Amalia is like, yeah, well, if, if he must have a name, you know? <laughs> and it's like, okay, obviously, you know, this guy is probably trouble within the world of this film. But even I was like, Easy. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. You, have to, you know, you treat a guy like that, you're, you're asking for trouble. And then there's also a funny element in Ghost and Mrs. Muir where her, like, unbelievably loyal servant is, like, sharing concerns at various points about decisions Lucy's making. And Lucy is just like, enough. Shut up. Like, I don't want you, like, influencing my life. And, it, like, not to, like, jump to the, like, final moment of film, which we're not describing now. I'll just note that it does honestly feel like her final words when the film, like, jumps ahead many years is her saying to her servant, like, quit bossing me around. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, this servant loves you. And cares about your life. Yeah. That that was... It's just funny. She's her own woman. <laughs> yeah. That was an element of the Ghost of Mrs. Muir that, like, I did keep coming back to, Ryan, where I, I just kept being like, 
she is, she's walk, you know, like she, her presumably, right. She, she fought to get her freedom because she was someone who was constantly being walked over. I think she even says something about how like she, she didn't have a voice. She didn't feel like she had a voice in that home and certainly with her in-laws. And she's like, and I'm taking Martha. And it's presented as this, like, I'm also liberating Martha from this bad vibe space. Yeah. But then, like, throughout the course of the whole movie, she's just constantly, like, telling Martha to, like, shut the fuck up, you know? Like, and know <laughs> yeah. her place. I mean, I don't, I think that was maybe just some sort of, like, yeah, like, old world Hollywood tone deafness or whatever, you know? That's such a trope in old Hollywood, right? The the servant who back talks and, you know, that kind of, like, lower class person who really, you know, the salt of the earth who really know what's up. But, like, she's just, like... She's putting Martha down, like, left and yeah. right. There's also a part where she says that she herself has accomplished nothing, but Martha has. So, that, so yeah, maybe mm. it's, it's this sort of, like, jealousy, you know, that she does see Martha as a better person somehow. It's much more complex in Mrs. Muir than it is in Crying Woman. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. She's just scared <laughs> shitless by this, like, guy with the big club foot, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> she just does not like that... that that look that he's got. I wanted to say, you know, what I found really interesting about, again, like, you know, both of these films is, I think when I, I sort of pitched the topic, um, you know, in my mind, I was thinking of so many of the the, the haunted home and haunted house films that I'd, I'd seen. And, you know, a lot of them follow a formula of this sort of like, you know, again, a, a similar kind of opening to, uh, certainly the ghost of Mrs. Merritt, which is usually like this family, right? And this new home, this new home that they've just purchased. And boy, what a great deal they got on it, you know, somewhere. And how this home is going to change everything for the better, right? So many movies seem to start that way with this, this house. And then it takes its time where small things start to happen, you know, strange things here and there. And the tension kind of builds from that to eventually, you know, some, some grand apparition, some grand climactic thing where yes, the whole house is like coming down. The ghost of Mrs. Mirror, it takes like no time to introduce the ghost, the apparition to us. And, and at first I was kind of thrown off by that. And then I, I sort of understood what kind of film we were watching and what we were going for. But it's like, I mean, it is like instantaneous that we have this, this great reveal of, of the ghost. I mean, at first, of course, you know, we get that whole sequence with the realtor, uh, and we see that, that image, the shot of the painting and, and tell me, uh, the the painting of Captain Greg of Rex Harrison. Tell me, I, I couldn't tell on the screen that I was watching, but when they open this this door, when the realtor sort of like opens the door and is like, you know, here, and we just see in this dark room, it's like pitch black in there, but we see the face of Captain Greg on the painting. That first image, is that actually Rex Harrison standing in the room, but just like mm. hit with a light on his face? And it did look very the like on, three dimensional. Yeah. It's it's the painting because I noticed that the perspective was slightly different. And they do that twice, and I feel like the first image it's actually him standing in that dark room, just getting blasted That's interesting. with some light. At the very least, it's a different expression. It's like slightly different. I did clock that. I thought, oh, okay, they got multiple paintings. The idea is that he's like 
you know, doing different glances. But that is interesting. It very well could be that it was just him and it was easier to light that yeah. way. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, from there, it's like the first night, I think, that like she's in the Earlier, home. he enters in her daydream, like the fucking day they move in. It's like, oh, you, or not even, well, it dissolves. They're like cleaning up the house. She goes upstairs for a little nap. And then again, back to this idea of, yeah, daydreaming. She literally falls asleep in the chair. We dolly onto her, onto the clock. We dissolve, we dolly to the window. And then this like ominous figure, you know, or like the door blows open. This ominous figure and enters, you know, as the camera like tracks, revealing his silhouette. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's like right away. Yeah. But it is when she's asleep, you know? And I think that's an interesting uh, aspect of this film, even as much mm, and yeah. as sort of present as Rex Harrison, Captain Greg is, uh, you can still read it as completely in her imagination, you know, um, because of that sort of aspect to it and what happens later. But anyway, I don't want to get too, uh, Sure. I mean, sleeping, yeah, sleeping is a big part of it. I mean, I now that you're mentioning that, there's a lot of emphasis on moments when she's like sleeping on a chair or laying down to bed, putting a blanket over her. Martha always like throwing a blanket on her. So that is very interesting that you sort of point that out. Yeah, that does seem to be a very prominent aspect. It does really seem like a haunted house film on fast forward for the first yes. 20 minutes of this movie. You know, when you're mentioning how normally those details would be doled out much with much more space and, you know, drafty haunted house breathing room yeah. between them, it does feel like this film is so self-aware and playful with that aspect that they're getting the genre element out of the way so that they could, like, lay the groundwork of those rules so then the film can transition into the film it actually yep. sort of is, even though it is all of these things all at once. Because when it does, like, move into romantic comedy territory, it all still feels a part of the same atmosphere, this, like, just seaside kind of ghostly vibe. Yeah. And it is, yeah, it is funny that a film even from the 40s is is scratching an itch for the audience, knowing it's doing a haunted house bit to kind of set the stage, get you set up, and then undermine it a little bit by having our autonomous protagonist arguing with the yeah. ghost. And then that argument's turning and blossoming Ex into love. Exactly, you know? dude. The undermining, which is when I was like, oh yeah, when I really clicked, because... Yes, from, from there, from the daydreaming and the first hint that there's something there, right? We as the audience are privileged to it. She's not. She's daydreaming. She's sleeping. And we're like, oh, there's a ghost, right? We see it. And then, you know, she wakes up. I guess it's like the middle of the night or something like that. And she goes and gets classic gothic haunted house, you know, shit. She gets like the solitary candlestick, right? Lights the candle and is moving through the dark house, only illuminated by this this single this single candle. She's going down to I guess what make tea or oh she puts together like a hot water bottle yeah. to go to bed. That's what she's doing. But she goes into the kitchen and it's spooky and it's creepy and it's all those those genre those genre tropes. You know the bells are going off. She goes into the kitchen and and the candle gets blown out and she just immediately is like show yourself motherfucker let's talk about this right <laughs> she's like i know you're here bitch come on out you know just talk to me yeah. like a person i say i know you're here what's wrong 
Are you afraid to speak up? Is that all you're good for, to frighten women? Well, I'm not afraid of you. Who ever heard of a cowardly ghost? Now, if the demonstration is over, I'll thank you not to interfere while I boil some water for my hot water. Light the candle. Go ahead. Light it. How can I when you keep blowing out the match? Light the blasted candle. <laughs> I loved it, dude. My realtor warned me about you. <laughs> yeah, like this is why I bought the house. Let's 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 have it out, right? And they just immediately he appears and they have this conversation in the kitchen. They just sort of lay out the 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 working relationship they're going to have for the rest of the movie. You know? Yeah. It's interesting hearing you guys talk about it like that because, you know, um, there, well, there's a really good like overview of Mankiewicz on senses of cinema. Um, and I don't know how much you guys know about like Joe Mankiewicz's reputation, um, which Andrew Saris, of course, famously in the American cinema book, had him under uh, less than meets the eye. Ooh. But uh, at the time, you know who loved Joe Mankiewicz, Calle de Cinema, Ooh. and Romer loved him. And, you know, they all did uh, in this period. And they coined uh, the term theater du film to talk about Mankiewicz, not to say that he made filmed plays, but that his films were about, the, you know, characters first in that theatrical tradition, right? And a lot of American critics were like, he doesn't have a visual style, he doesn't have this, that. Um, and later he wrote his own films and his voice, I think, is more evident than in, in something like this. But what the Kaye people said was that he sort of had his own self-conscious genre with self-conscious characters. And I think that's so crucial to like how Gene Tierney plays it in that moment of like that shift in the film where it's like, we're not going to be scared by this guy. We're going to, you know, insult each other and then fall in love, you know, <laughs> that can only come from a very self-conscious sort of character, um, that they yeah. attribute to this sort of recurring Mankiewicz type. I mean, they even talk about his characters and autonomy as being like a thread throughout all of his, his filmography. And I hadn't seen this film and I'm really not too familiar with Mankiewicz's filmography. I've seen probably five of them, you know? I think he made 20 films, maybe more. So um, it was interesting to read that, you know, and think like, yeah, they were, they were, they were on it, you know? That's mm -hmm. certainly what's happening here. Um, and it is theatrical, but I think it is cinematic too. I wouldn't, miss, I wouldn't say this is a, a play, you know, like in any sense of the word. No. Oh, not at all. No, I mean, I was stunned by those cliffs. My God. Yeah. Every time it cut to the cliffs, it was pure cinema. I'm just like, give me back to the water. I mean, I, I, Molly and I, on our trip, we spent some time uh, on the coast the past couple, the past week or so. And this movie, man, I just, if I could taste that air, I was just like, give me back. It's stunning. It's, it's really beautiful. California as England. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, and, and that's again, and he doesn't linger. It's like so classic Hollywood. He has every opportunity to languish in these like seaside landscapes, but like 
He's not about that, you know, really. You get it because they chose a great location, uh, but he's not really, like, that concerned with, with that, you know? It's like, let's get back into the bedroom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 like a it's a parlor drama <laughs> at times, you know, than more more so of course than than like a horror film um and and that's really like you know where this film uh unfolds it's it's between their interactions and that's why it's like it's so important for her to call him out at the very beginning because she is not going to be played by anybody and she wouldn't be played by her fucking in-laws she's not going to be played by this damn ghost this stupid captain right but she just from that point on is is having this very um important sort of journey of discovery discovering herself and discovering him you know discovering what he is all about and i think that's what makes this movie uh, so beautiful is seeing that interaction of character of two people getting to know one another. This this ghost who is perhaps now alive more than ever before, right? Now that he's dead, because he she's getting to like the heart of of who he is and what made him tick. Not just this 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 image of a captain, but but the person underneath. Right. And I think that's why it's sort of that they go off to write this book together, which becomes almost like a therapeutic sort of dis, you know, process for, for him to sort of work through all that. Right. Because isn't that part of it? Right. She's in here. She's got the gold dividends, but uh, she runs out of money. I didn't really understand yeah, that the, very The quickly. mine is, is uh, you know, the, the mine's done. The mine no, goes no bust. dividends. Yeah. yeah. That's what her. Her her blasted in laws uh, <laughs> tell her when they when they show up. Yeah, yeah. but you're right. They write uh, "Blood and Swash" by Captain <laughs> X, uh, which which is incredible. And yeah, I mean, like it, it takes these wild turns. Um, but like he wants it to be a book about like you know the 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 sort of like almost cartoon caricature of like the sea life yeah but she's like what'd you tell me about your childhood you yeah. know what was your mom like and she and corrects he, his grammar and corrects his grammar exactly but again that's that's what i'm talking about with like this the the angle of of this being simply her imagination uh she were then she wrote wrote the book you know just imagining this guy right you know because ultimately it's made clear she's not just typing what he says right she's right listening to it and then she's writing the book you know um so there is that interesting element because uh, I did, too. I did. Now that you bring that up, I did have a point. You know, just sort of like a point of order in terms of discussing the various ghosts, the various hauntings, the various apparitions. You know, I mean, uh, we'll get to the curse of the crying woman because, boy, that is. I mean, talk about a grab bag. You, you kind of got it all. And we're going to get into <laughs> it in, in that one. But, but in this, you know, I was again trying to imagine. Okay, the ghost. Right. What are the parameters? of the ghost. And, you know, in most haunted house films, right, the idea is that the house is haunted. But here, it's really that that he is just this ghost that can kind of go wherever he wants, do whatever, he, seemingly, right? Very true. Because he can leave the house. He sure can. He follows her around everywhere. Yeah, interacting. I mean, he stalks her throughout the movie, you know? But like, <laughs> but here's my question, right? So it's like, 
it's established that he can manipulate objects, that he can kind of do whatever he wants. He can pick things up. He can grab people, right? The in-laws show up and yeah. he's like whipping them around and eventually like literally like throws them out of the house. So my question is like, with the book, can't he just manipulate the typewriter? Like, why isn't he typing the whole damn thing? You know, he's got to dictate it to her. I was kind of curious as to why he wasn't, you know, maybe that's just the man thing, right? He's like, the woman is the, yeah. the scribe. He doesn't know how to type. And the sex, sure, you know, he's just an old salty sea captain, you know? But I was kind of like, why wouldn't he just be like... You gotta be trained on one of those machines. Yeah, that's true. That's very true, you know? But like, <laughs> It's a little messy, because I was thinking the same thing, because he does mention early in the film that he can't interact with the physical world, that, like, his, you know, he doesn't have a body, like, they can't, like, actually be in love I guess, you know, that's why she's got to go and seek out real men out in the real world. But there are plenty of moments where he does have physical interaction with things and people. Yeah. But I was like, if you could grab the in-laws, shake them up a bit and get them out of the house, like, you could be a lover, don't you think? Oh, you do. <laughs> like he's got those, that power. Damn, dude, you're drifting into the entity territory here, yeah. dude. That's a <laughs> demon seed. Yeah, very problematic. <laughs> Can of worms, right. you know? <laughs> But it is, yeah, a good point. Good question. Yeah. You know, there is definitely ways where you could read this where it's her imagination. But there are, of course, her daughter does admit later in the film to having seen him as a ghost. Uh, And the dog, in a little bit of a goof moment, I do love that the dog sees the ghost. I guess animals would always see ghosts. Sure. I like when he's, like, going to sit in his chair and the dog's like, oh, shit. (laughs) The dog has to, like, jump off to get out of the way of the ghost. But it does, it seems like he can interact physically with things so the rules i think are a little slippery i think he could have typed that book i think it was sort of like a little bit of a power play yeah and i mean I'm, i i hear what marsh is saying i my, my question was more just like well what are the limitations of this guy because yeah she does later when he has sent her off like you can't be with me you need to find a real man you'll be better for it which of course sends her into the the clutches of George fucking Sanders, oh, you know, boy. like, woof, you know, talk about <laughs> out of the frying pan into the fire. Um, but like she goes to the beach at one point and is kind of having this interlude with him. And then suddenly like around a tree comes, you know, Captain Greg. And he's like, I've been watching you the whole time here. It's like, where the fuck? This guy can go anywhere he wants, you know, like, <laughs> so it's, it's true. Yeah. They don't really, uh, they don't really get into that. Yeah, because it's 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 presented as like the house. It's the symbol of his. Yeah, because you know. he wants to turn the house into a place for retired seamen, and also he wants everyone to know that he didn't kill himself. The window closed. It was a gas accident. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, just a, a a sad, embarrassing way to go out for such a a swashbuckling guy. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a more obvious explanation in Hollywood mindset, and it's that uh, he loves her and thinks she's hot. And well, just like exactly, you know. Also, plausible well, yeah. deniability with the book. You know, it's like sure. if you're going to claim you wrote this, like you might as well write it. You know, out there in the world, people are going to ask you, "How'd you come up with this? Yeah, this swashbuckling tale." You know, so she technically she did write the book. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I want to bring up speaking of like writing the book, just really quick, the guy, the publisher that she goes to meet, uh, he has this like amazing 
this amazing line because like as Captain Greg has pointed out, this publisher is sort of an aspiring seaman, but he's just like, you know, a, a guy dork. Yeah, a dork that works at a publishing company. And he and he's talking to Gene Tieran and he's like, Ah, to live like that, a sailor. Bless my soul to live like that. Instead of sitting there turning out indigestible reading matter for a bilious public. The Chad Sea Captain, the virgin book publisher. Yeah, dude. Like, yeah he hates himself. Incredible <laughs> dynamic. But yeah, so like while their, you know, their goal then is to, yes, uh, save the cottage by publishing this book. Meanwhile, in Mexico, there's a different plan being put yeah. into place, yeah. right? Which I will admit was one that somewhat confused me. And I think you oh, kind yeah. of alluded to this, Ryan, in your intro, but like, I'm not going to lie. I was having fits trying to, to suss out what the fuck was going on in that house. Yeah, I was actually kind of hoping you guys would be able to help me too, because <laughs> when we were talking about the rules of the ghosts in The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, the rules of The Curse of the Crying Woman are, are a bit perplexing because... Essentially, the way I understand it, Aunt Selma has La Llorona, the rotting corpse of La Llorona, in her basement, mm -hmm. speared. And she's like up on display. And Selma, and with that her niece, are, they are related by blood, it sounds like. Yeah. To the, the crying woman. Which in itself is weird, because I, again, I thought, you know, the crying woman like drowned her children but again they don't acknowledge that so i don't know how the bloodline necessarily well they created their own myth yeah yeah and so selma invited her niece back to the home at this key moment because she needs her niece to remove the spear and thus like kind of resurrect la Yorona, bring her back and then in doing so, this woman of darkness will grant omnipotence to Aunt Selma. So, okay, so I have, like, some questions that I was half thinking about while watching the film, and I think some things slipped away. And they're simple, so I'll just see if you guys know the answer. Is the aunt alive? Or at this point, is she also a ghost? Could you make sense of that? Uh, neither of them are ghosts. They're both alive. Yeah. But there's a they're weird... Both, okay. <laughs> there's a weird... There's a weird mo. I mean, it, although she, they're immortal, or well, the who? original one is immortal. I think that the idea is that Selma is able to use the dark arts. She's learned to use, uh, you know, black magic. She's almost like a witch yeah. figure, because there are like weird things, right? Like, you know, Am Amelia is like. You haven't aged a fucking day, right? Like, I mean, she's like, you you look exactly the right. same, and it's been a long time. So so clearly she is able to to do something, you know, keep recycling her life force. They make some comment about blood, uh, but she's also giving the blood to La Llorona. She's giving the blood to the the, yeah. the creature in the basement, the corpse or whatever. But she's yeah. clearly also using it for herself. But there is, again, this other strange moment where... When they go into the basement and she's first going to show her uh, La Llorona's corpse, uh, there's like all these cobwebs in this like passageway. And the ant walks right through it, walks right through them. And she becomes almost sort of like translucent. And she just sort of just doesn't even brush against any of the webs. And then Amelia, 
she like gets a face full of cobwebs. She's like, what the she fuck like is dives that? head first into it. Yeah. 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 So, so <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I believe that she is alive, but uh-huh. that she's but she also, has powers. she has powers. She's able to move between planes of, of reality and existence. And she'll have more powers if it's her niece be the one that actually like completes the ritual before midnight or at the stroke of midnight to release the spirit of La Llorona. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I guess, I guess I was reading it a little bit sort of in that, like, you know, uh, Rosemary's baby, you know, kind of vibe of, of, you know, right. They just need her to be the vessel for the spirit of this, you know, fucking witch or whatever, right? Yeah. Like, that's what they're trying to do? It was confusing to me, too, because I, I, I was never... It was never clear to me why Selma expected her niece, Amelia, to to do that. Because, <laughs> because it was foretold. It wasn't, it wasn't a matter of choice. Right. That's but it kind of seems like it at the end, doesn't well, it? Well, yeah. Yeah. That was a miscalculation. That's the struggle. Yeah. But she's just like hoping that it's going to be like a cosmic compulsion. She's not hoping. She is certain that it has certain. been written and foretold. Well, she makes yeah. a comment, yeah. right, that, that you know, her blood is, is starting to turn. And she says something like, you're going to lose the ability to differentiate between good and evil. Pronto la sangre irá desapareciendo de sus venas. Y tendrá necesidad de ella. No podrá distinguir entre el bien y el mal. El tiempo avanza. Y ya nada podrá detener la maldición de la llorona. Right, you are, she basically says to her, like, you're going to give in to this. Uh, it, so I guess in that regard, it's, it's not like she's forcing her because that was my question. I kept being like, why don't they just leave? You know, I'd just be like, no, right. fuck this. I'm not doing this. Let's go. Like, hi, man. Come on, let's get well, out. She tried to leave and she strangled the grandpa because <laughs> well, it was all written and foretold. <laughs> Dude, yeah. Right. That's true. <laughs> that's a, that's another part that I, I kind of laughed at a little bit, you know, because, yes, she's like, she does try to flee and, and she waylays this other poor guy on a, a cart, this this older gentleman, and, and, he, and she's just kind of like, take my husband to the hospital. He's been hurt. And the guy's kind of like, wait, what? What's going on here? And she just starts choking him. <laughs> And <laughs> like clawing at his face. Yeah, the actor like bless his heart, but the actor is like he's really trying to like sell it and get into it, and he's just like making the funniest fucking noises while he's getting choked. I swear to God, I was just like trying to mimic them, but I'm exaggerating. But he's pretty much while he's being choked by this small woman, he's just going well, 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 like on his cart, <laughs> like. Yeah. And then yeah, she rakes his face, and then he just goes and tattles on her to the to federales or whoever. So yeah, she she couldn't leave. She had her shot, and she blew it. Yeah, yeah, because you know the spiritual power of it all. You know, she was compelled. Was, draw, to... was drawing. Yeah, her in, you know. Well, something I walked away from this film thinking that was really interesting, considering it being something that that came out in Mexico at this time, and you mentioning the spirituality of it, the way things, you know, it was written. Did you guys notice that there is like I don't think there's a single reference to God. 
in the entire film. It's like a godless film. Yeah. It's is a film like just of darkness. Like no one is ever referring back to like Christian iconography or like using it as a crutch or something to hold on to some sort of purity that can like get them through this. Like it is a film like entirely preoccupied with the dark arts as something that does exist independent of like Catholic thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, 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 you know, at certain times it was like, Reminding me of uh, our Coffin Joe <laughs> experience, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I guess that has like direct reference, but oh yeah, Coffin Joe's like, I will kill God if I see him. <laughs> like, show your face, bitch. <laughs> but yeah, like the the focus on evil, right? Again, because I I chose to read, you know, the ant as the main character, not. Uh, the hapless newlyweds who are out choking yeah. grandpas in the forest. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about Jaime, oh, uh, yeah. the fiance. I love Jaime. Uh, My favorite character in dude, the whole movie. This guy, just like when he goes to investigate. And he's got his cigar. (laughs) I seriously wrote down, like, he's always got his cigar. Like, he won't drop that thing to save his life. Yeah, this guy is just a a hapless fool. And that sequence is amazing as he he goes upstairs into the bell tower and gets, like, bonked on the head by, like, the hairy doctor uh, and, like, falls off the banister. (laughs) I was cracking up, man. Yeah. Oh, I fainted. Dude, well, exactly. Like, the amount of times this guy falls in the movie (laughs) from, like, over 30 feet, it seems, and then just wakes up in a chair and lights a cigar. Like, I I, I, I just I just kept writing, like, I may fucking rocks, dude. Uh, like, would it surprise you if I told you that uh, that actor, Abel Salazar, was the producer of this film? No, not at all. Because he's got very, like, he's got movie producer energy in this whole twisted nightmare. Yeah. I accidentally sort of found that out just looking at the credits before I started it. And as the movie was progressing and he's like tied up in the torture room, I'm like, well, he's the producer though, you know, like <laughs> nothing bad is really going to happen to him. And I was right. Nothing re- bad really does happen to him. Yeah. Despite the fact that, yeah, he's constantly getting into <laughs> to yeah. all kind of incidents. Yeah. He gets fucked up a lot and then just bounces back, you know? And again, yeah. also, you know, you got to love that, that kind of, that kind of compulsion to be this like, 50 year old man that's that's married to a 22 year old woman or whatever 25 i guess she is you know and that's the funny thing about it too because i did read that he was the producer he's also a director he had like made some films in the 40s and 50s and the woman who plays amelia that's his wife oh in real life. Snap, dude. or at least fiance at the time yeah. i can't remember but Haunted it's, honeymoon. it's that they were they were together, haunted honeymoon. Exactly, dude. Talk about talk <laughs> again. You know, going back to your uh, senses of cinema. Talk about self-conscious cinema, dude. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. hey, let's put ourselves in the movie and family yeah. cinema as well. We got multiple relatives on display. Thinking though about the origins of all of this, because we've been like talking about where this evil comes from, where it's rooted and how the rules play out, there is that amazing sequence in the middle of the film that does try to explain where all of this evil comes from, and it's when the film turns into a full-on, like, avant-garde horror. 
los siglos se van sucediendo unos a otros y van repitiéndose otra vez. Cada momento que vivimos ha existido antes y volverá a existir. Pero todo queda grabado en el espejo de la nada, en la llama del tiempo. Dude, negative image flashback. That's yeah. a great sequence. With with seemingly werewolves and other cultists, that every image in that was so startling. And I mean, of course, because it's a negative, but even beyond that, the design that went into that, everything is shown so briefly. And they're like big wide shots, dude. They're yeah. like, here's a full yeah. church for yeah. like one shot. And there's like 40 people. There's extras. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of it. I mean, like... It hints at something so much bigger. Dude, I was like, I was like... 90% of the budget went into this two-minute sequence. Like, this is the movie right here. They they blew their wad on this. And then they, yeah, they they just, you know, <laughs> they filmed the rest of it in this, like, creepy house, right? Like, Well, I mean, there is also, I couldn't confirm any of this, but I also had the creeping suspicion that that's stuff from other movies, yeah. especially since they were showing it negative. That could have just yeah. them been them like digging through the archives of not even archives just what had been released over the past 15 years yeah. in mexico for their horror cinema and just taking bits and pieces from yeah, it. yeah because i mean like you said there's there's just there's all kinds yeah. of stuff in there the like, scale and scope of it i mean yeah it would have to be a stock footage in a sense yeah yeah and it makes no sense like like as you kind of said, it, it's the moment where they're they're about to like explain everything to us. This is like the exposition. This is supposed to be the exposition dump, you know, where it's like, here's why all this is happening. But it just gives you more questions than answers when you're done with <laughs> yes. it. You know, like yes. there's like a part where there's people in togas, you know. Then you, you describe the werewolf, but then there's also these like this like door opens up and these three guys with like goblin heads just in suits come like walking in <laughs> yeah. at one point. I mean, and it just cuts from one thing to the next with no cause and effect, no no sense of of why or or how any of these things are linked, other than just. Oh, it's evil. It's the utmost evil. They're like aliens, you know? Yeah, but I mean, for what it's worth, it, it, it really worked for me. I was so sold on that moment. And even if it is stock footage, it does feel like all these disparate elements that feel like, again, they're pointing towards something bigger. But the way it's all arranged and the rapid fire nature of it, and just the fact that the narration doesn't necessarily seem to actually be interacting with the images we're seeing. No, no, it doesn't match up at all. <laughs> yeah, it just feels like a special moment that that felt like a really like a bold creative gesture that worked for like my modern sensibility. I wonder how it played for audiences back then. Yeah. Then cut to Jaime, you know, puffing on a stogie in a chair. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what happened? I was knocked out. <laughs> what did I miss? Yeah, like, throughout the movie, when Aunt Selma is, like, explaining things or just, like, you know, doing her whole thing, like, I didn't really understand it, but I understood it on the level of, like, black metal lyrics yeah because if you like listen to what she's saying like you may not understand what it means but it sounds like the hardest shit ever Inexistente. 
it is very like yeah like poet death poetry you yeah. know like really sinister shit that she is spouting off she talks about how there's like there's no beginning and no end it's like what yeah. the hell does that mean yeah <laughs> it sense, it's, this, it's, it's this insane worldview it is it is like black metal lyrics because the one line I do remember from the scene with all the negative imagery is when she mentions like and, and there was a ball of fire and pain and the kingdom of blood you know it's just this full on intensity that ultimately kind of means nothing but with that imagery it means everything for the way the film actually feels it's kind of like yeah. the set dressing it just has this ecstatic quality yeah like the one of the moments of the film that i similarly found to be very charged is when she's like hypnotizing Jaime and there's an exchange of extreme close-ups and she's giving like one of those black metal speeches, you know? <laughs> like that was a very, very good sort of moment uh, that I was vibing with. And it ends with her like looking right into the camera and going like, the origin of evil mm-hmm. <laughs> shit you're like this rocks like you know that moment uh, also brought me back to uh uh bat woman mm. because again part of the the process apparently in you know mexican cinema for any kind of uh you know sort of either like genetic engineering or dark arts will involve an action <laughs> figure of some yeah. kind you know yeah. because uh, there's there's a Jaime doll that becomes very present yep. in that sequence where she uses it to I guess possess him or just bring him into the room it seems but but yeah they they love their they love their they love their dolls to that's true that's two episodes done. in a row Ryan's brought films that prominently feature action figures <laughs> <laughs> you gotta use what you got at the studio. <laughs> yeah, man. It's true. It's true. Yeah, it's just imagining like the prop room where they were raiding for a lot of these things. Because there are so many pieces of, th- of just things in this movie that are used very briefly and then like not used again. Even sort of creatures. There's a really startling image when the ant is a a corpse she is like this decayed flying woman wearing nothing but rags and her flesh is decayed and she just flies into the camera and then it's a sharp cut and she's just standing there so she has the ability to kind of float around as a dead body it seems like that's one of the reasons i was wondering if she was alive at all or if she had sort of transcended life and now was just this figure of evil death but again it felt like they had that the thing just like on set and then they decided to use it for that gag because we never see her fly again uh, in that state there's a couple things like that there's mirror gags bat gags flying skeleton gags like they're pulling out all these sort of like classic tricks uh, alongside this like yeah very sort of evil uh film and it's it's very weird because like a lot of that stuff was was very hokey when a lot of the sort of mythology stuff was very scary. It was very scary, (laughs) you know? So it had like an interesting blend for me. Cause I do think there are elements of this film that are like 
pretty terrifying. Like the stuff again, and goes back to like Texas Chainsaw. You know, great grandma was Valerona yeah. was the greatest killer of them all, and it's like husk of a fucking like. <laughs> I mean, that yeah. <laughs> That stuff to me was pretty powerful, but then yeah, you got the the stringed bat, you know. See, and that's like, <laughs> I mean, obviously in the beginning, you know, it 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 establishes its sort of like universal horror, um, you know, legacy or lineage, you know, and there there is a connection there because, you know, um, there were a lot like I know Universal did have a a. Um, like a, a big like distribution wing in Mexico. And, you know, that's the story with Dracula where, you know, they would film on universal lots, like entire Mexican language um, <clears throat> versions of films or productions to distribute like in Mexico. I mean, Dracula, I think is the most well-known case, yeah. right? Where during the day they had the English language production and they had, you know, Bela Lugosi and they had the entire like cast and crew there. But then at night they had a whole Mexican crew, Mexican cast, Mexican director, cinematographer using the same props, costumes, sets, locations, and all that stuff for Mexican audiences. So I can imagine that there probably was over the years, you know, people who had experiences maybe working or knew people or learned things from these universal Mexican productions that were going on. So obviously like, yes, I was thinking of universal, but when we get into this territory that you're talking about, I was like, man, this is just, it's like a William Castle production. Like that's yeah. the, the stuff I also saw being, you know, uh, an inspiration here, especially, yeah, the spooky shit flying directly at the screen, the very kind of like gimmicky jump scare stuff that they also tried to introduce because the universal horror stuff, like I think the ultimate legacy of, you know, of that universal stuff is the atmosphere that you're talking about. You know, these, these were horror films that were heavy on atmosphere and certainly by today's standards, you know, not very scary, uh, in terms of, you know, upsetting us, obviously audiences back then very different, you know, the kinds of things that they might be, be horrified or terrorized by, but this is getting into that newer cycle in the sixties of like, man, we really got to, shock them you know we got to get them to jump out of their seats a little bit here it isn't just gonna be you know you can't just violate god's laws and terrify people anymore right yeah you know like <laughs> post-world war ii right yeah. post the bomb i mean good god right we gotta we gotta we gotta really get them get them worked up here and it isn't just yeah gonna be a a Hungarian guy trying to seduce all our ladies, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> Instead, we have to have Jaime just throw a bundle of rope at a bat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. When he, he took out the bat, I, I, I know he didn't, but I'm picturing him still, like, with one with his hand holding a cigar when he like threw the rope at the bat. Yeah. Like Well rest assured he held on to that cigar as long as he could. <laughs> dude. Oh man. That shit rocks, dude. Well, uh I wanted to uh, read something else uh because uh well, you know who wrote about Mankiewicz? Deleuze did. Oh yeah. Uh and I want to bring that up because I do think I I sort of knew where Ghost and Mrs. Muir was heading, but not entirely. And I, and I really appreciated that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Deleuze described Mankiewicz's narrative approach as, quote, 
neither a straight line nor circle which completes itself, but instead is comprised of perpetual forks like so many breaks in causality. And the way that the ghost in Mrs. Muir does, yeah, fork off into these almost different movies um, was really fascinating to me because after this whole initial thing with writing the book, uh, you know, it, it builds up and up and up, but... Well, they they can't fuck. They can't get married, you know? Like, they just can't do it. And so he disappears, right? And in the timeline of this film, it's ultimately like a year that he was like haunting her slash loving her. Uh, and then he's gone. And she gets embroiled with George Sanders, who is a extremely pushy, cynical, uh, louse of a children's author, <laughs> Uncle Neddy, <laughs> Uncle Neddy uh, who seems to be quite disreputable. Um, and she gets sort of swept up in a romance there, which is also funny because it's like the first time she leaves the house, just one man is like, I'm going to follow you around forever until you marry me. You yeah. know, everywhere she goes, whether She's it's a ghost or... A, yeah, I mean, I get it. It's Gene Tierney. It totally makes sense. But <laughs> and, and then, you know, again, not to get ahead of ourselves, but there is like a lot of passage of time in the last third of the film. And it really just like goes off uh, in a direction I wasn't expecting. So yeah. I wanted to bring that up in light of, uh, you know, your boy uh, yeah. dishing on Mankiewicz. Yeah. Well, and even just to quickly link both of these boys yeah. uh, for this film, it's really important when, when Captain Greg does kind of exit the film for a period of time it is when Jean Tierney is asleep, when Lucy's asleep, and he's telling her that everything, his presence, was a dream. Yep. He explicitly says, it's been a dream, Lucia, all dreams must die, right? Yep. And thinking about these forking paths and then the way this could all be interpreted as something as a dream and a haunt as a dream, he calls attention to that when he does take his exit. And as the film goes on, she seems to forget him and and treat it as if it was actually a dream despite of course it being quite concretely presented to us despite my theories um right yes like, oh yeah but you know yeah. getting into as well that idea of like the fork i mean i think that's that's why i was finding this movie constantly sort of like refreshing is that you know it was like five different movies in one on a certain level, you know, and every, everything that sort of would get built in, built up would then just kind of disperse or to use the parlance of, of, you know, the ghost Captain Greg dematerialize, yeah. right. Which is a nice Deleuzian term almost, you know, dematerialize that, that, yeah, as we said, it's, it starts off as this sort of like haunted house movie and then that quickly dematerializes and then becomes a, a comedy of, of sorts of this, this ghost and the in-laws coming and it has this very kind of comedic sort of a feeling, right, of, of almost like a farce at times of like the ghost pulling the ants around and, you know, pushing things down and stuff like that, which is interesting because I did research that this was developed into eventually a sitcom yep. that kind of had that vibe of just like, imagine living with a ghost the whole time, you know, like, <laughs> and hilarity ensues because no one can see him but, but her, I guess. 
But then, yeah, then it suddenly becomes this kind of like tragic romance of, of a love triangle that develops between George Sanders, Rex Harrison, and Gene Tierney. And then suddenly, poof, that dematerializes when he's just like, look, I know the score. I'm a ghost, right? I'm out of here. Like, you're going to be better off. You need this. And then we get into that whole thing of, of her being with him and discovering that He's been married all along, and boy, that's a sad scene when she goes to London and the fucking wife is like, I'm so sorry that he did this to you. He does this all yeah, the time. Not the first time that a situation like this has happened. Yeah, that is Insane like... Insane That is, oh man, that is like darker than anything else in the movies. Just that wife being like, oh, I get it. I know why you're here. And, and having like pity on her not again like the whole like what my fucking husband but just like yeah he's a real asshole sorry do you need cab fare or something <laughs> like i feel right. bad yeah. for you i mean yeah. i think it's helpful again to think about it in the context of world war ii and world war ii coming to a close mm -hmm. you know uh even you know the ghost himself is like anyone that lost a husband or a brother, you know, now we can remember our, our old friends who perished in the great war or perhaps your husband who uh, impregnated a French farm girl as we've seen in, you know, in gauntlet history, right? Uh, or things like that. Um, shit happens, right? And I, I see just like the traces of that just massive... Uh, event, you know, sort of lingering there. Yeah, and, and now that you bring it up, and honestly, I didn't reflect on that at all while I was watching it in terms of of the time. But but yeah, when the movie then ultimately winds up where you know in its conclusion, which is a very unexpected place, which is Gene Tierney now presumably like thirty or forty years later. Um, which I, again, was, I was really trying to figure out the timeline, you know, of this, this like lapse of time, because I was like, if this much as time passed, wouldn't we even be farther into the future than the movie was shot? You know, I was thinking like, aren't we in like the fifties by now? <laughs> but anyway, that's beside the point, you know, but it's like her as this now gray old woman and, you know, she's, she's doesn't know it at the time, but she's about to have a heart attack and she's about to pass away. And Greg in that moment, once she has died, rematerializes and comes back to, to usher her out the door to this, this beautiful now time they're going to have together where she's young again. And they're walking off into this very kind of like ephemeral misty, uh, horizon, maybe the sea or something like that. But, but when you're describing it as this, you know, I, I sort of was thinking about how there were a lot of movies right after World War II, which really were about this sort of like therapeutic process of coming to terms with the fact that, you know, a hundred million people just fucking died in this horrifying apocalyptic event. And there was so much death and there were so many people you know, there were so many people who died young, who lost, as you said, like loved ones. And so a lot of movies were kind of about getting people to, to, to accept those things, to find beauty in them, to, to sort of like work through those, 
those traumas and those tragedies. And now I'm seeing this movie very much as that, like your husband's ship was torpedoed and sank. Like, don't worry, you'll be reunited again and you'll both be young and he'll be beautiful. And so will you like, it really kind of hit me at that ending. And I found it so incredibly like touching. I was not prepared for it at all. Certainly again, talking about all these forks, certainly from where we began, you know, it's so lighthearted, but the ending of this movie, like hit me like a dump truck that I just really was like not prepared for. And then, yeah, now as you've described it, it has this whole other context that, that is even more moving of thinking about it in, you know, the later forties and people sort of watching this movie and just like bawling in the theater, thinking about their husband or their uncle or their brother or their son who didn't make it back from that. Yeah. No, this is definitely a movie where God is present compared to something like the curse of the crying yeah. woman. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a real like holiness to that final moment when she walks away with her, with her sailor. But again, interestingly, like there's, there's very little mention. I don't think there's any oh, mention of yes. God at no. all in, in the ghost of Mrs. Mirror. Like, Thinking of like classic Hollywood and, you know, the, the, a place that, that certainly wasn't ever shy about being like, and God put them together again, you know, like there really isn't any mention of that at all. And even the idea of confronting the afterlife, it isn't like, yeah, well, I came back from heaven because, you know, I have this unfinished business. There's none of that at all. Right. This it's true. It's true. It's at least an acknowledgement that the afterlife can be something like peaceful and with grace sure. while it's nothing but a darkness uh, and despair in Curse of the Crying Woman. Yeah, and just one last one last note on, on the ghost of Mrs. Muir is I think that sequence also shows us uh, a woman alone but content and happy with her life. I mean, she ditches George Sanders and it's not like uh, it's a it's a weep fest like oh I'll never be married right she's just like that's cool I'm just gonna like walk on the beach a lot and commune with nature and think about Captain Greg and live a live a fulfilled life yeah on my own mm-hmm. you know and that just sort of happens in between these just like epic dissolves of waves the uh, the Fox montage department working overtime with uh, some of those <laughs> some of those sequences there as time just all of a sudden starts to unfold rapidly uh, and she you know we see like the signpost with her daughter's name on it in the sand over the years get lower and lower that's classic Hollywood montage shit it's, uh, it's really good but yeah. yeah that autonomy is retained I think is what I'm sort of getting at her single sure. goal at the beginning of the film was to be an independent person. And through all of this, that's how it ended up. And it was tragic on many levels, but it also wasn't, you know? So, Especially with the note, and we kind of got to this a little bit earlier, but the fact that, like, the last thing she does before she dies is once again, like, put down Martha, like, you know, yeah. and like, <laughs> like the last, I was just thinking about how sad that moment is, is like, is Martha like walking out of the room and like saying over her shoulder, something to the effect of like, God, you're such an old bitch, you know? And like, that's, 
<laughs> again, there's just also <laughs> That's something. That's how she goes. I know. There's just yeah. also something like kind of again like extra touching about it. It's being like, man, and that's that's life. You never know when your final interaction is going to be with somebody, and and like that idea of like never never leave someone like you know on a on a sour note, yeah. like never end a relationship. Yeah, she chews or, her out over the milk, and then she drinks the milk because ultimately Martha's always right, and, and then she dies mid milk, drops <laughs> that shit all over the floor. <laughs> Poor Martha, would have to clean that up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Molly was really bitter about that because she was like getting very angry anytime Lucy was being cruel to Martha, and it's like in that nice moment when the music's swelling and Lucy's young again, and she's walking out with Captain Gray. And she looks peacefully at Martha ascending the stairs. Molly just is like, oh, great. And now poor Martha, who like just got chewed out, is going to go find a dead body. And then she's going to have that saddled on her day. Yeah. And a spilled glass of milk or whatever. And a spilled glass of milk, like lots to clean up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. There's also lots to clean up at the end of <laughs> Curse of yeah. the Crying Woman. And, and also a bit of autonomy found. Uh, in unexpected places, I guess you can say. And I, I've, I, I, you know, there's not a lot of writing on this movie. I did come across some that uh, had a very different reading of it than than I did. I guess at least in the context of, of our conversation. But at the end, when Amelia has to do what is written, yeah. she has to remove the spear and you know, really light the fire and bring La Llorona back. Yeah. As the bell strikes at midnight. <laughs> yeah. And it's like this thing goes on forever. Oh, my it, it God. Feel, it has to be at least five minutes, and it feels like 20 when she's deciding whether she's going to pull the the spear out of the corpse. And I, I did see some, you know, I, I don't know if it's like dismissive or reading some things where people were like, oh, yeah, and then the film kind of backtracks on whatever sort of feminist angle it was working with by just showing the indecisiveness of a woman in a moment of crisis. And I was like, I, I don't know. I mean, she's, if we're treating what is written here as the ultimate scripture, it is like the law, you know, this, it's fate. It's this compulsion that she has to adhere to. It's a pretty significant decision for her to not do that. Because, again, everything leading up to that moment uh, is to the reasons of why she's even playing along. There's not, like, this big threat over her, necessarily. It's just, it's this power that she can't control. It's this powerful evil. And in this moment, goodness triumphs. She doesn't pull out the spear. She has her own autonomy. Yeah, well, hold on there. Because in the context, (laughs) I think, of the scene... It is Jaime who is yelling at her to not do it, uh, who sort of breaks the spell. And to me, it felt, uh, yeah, like like their love, allegedly. Uh, And that's where it sort of lost me, because I was like, despite the fact that they're married... um, or engaged See, I, in real life. To me, life. it seemed like she couldn't even fucking hear him. It did. Did she? I guess that didn't register for me 
late last you night. She, so she was reacting to what he was saying. She seemed like so focused on what she was doing. Well, she yeah. was under a spell, but yes. Yeah. Um, ultimately, okay. like she stops, you know, he yells and she stops. I mean, he's yelling throughout, but uh, there appears to be a shot reverse shot okay. sort of correlation. But what I'm saying is that the film does not develop this love at all or demonstrate no. that it's actually uh, powerful enough to overcome the cool ass, no eye crying woman uh, cursed shit like <laughs> yeah. I mean I'm with whoever wrote whatever online that you read in a sense that yeah, yeah you yeah. could go uh, just full evil with this movie you know like uh, I always think of uh, what's that uh, Mark Ro- what's the Mark Robeson Satan movie the seventh victim mm-hmm. right like mm. that's a movie that like just when you think like someone's gonna get saved it's just like no hail Satan an end, you know? And I think yeah. this film, you know, again, I don't know what the censorship situation was like, but you could have gone, you know, La Llorona, f- full, yes. you know, coven shit, and then just you're done, you're out, you know? Yeah. But instead, no, we got to save Jaime? You got to save Jaime? Mm-hmm. You, you, you make a compelling point, because then the film, <laughs> like, as I mentioned, like, oh, it feels like it takes five minutes for her to decide whether to pull out the spear. Then it seems as if, you know, again, this movie probably has, like, you know, f- six minutes left of it, but it feels as though, okay, now we have a 20-minute fight sequence that's just this vanity moment for the producer yeah. to, to really tussle with her. He gets, yeah. he gets some of his, God. he gets, like, to show his wrestling chops, because they are, yeah. they're going at it. <laughs> The intercutting is really nice in that sequence, but the fighting is, yeah, sort of like hokey, you know? I mean, when they pick yeah. up, like, the beam, I mean, it's cool that the Hacienda is, like, falling apart as all this is happening, and there's dust and, like, walls cracking, but they pick up the beam, and it's, like, clearly styrofoam, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> it's fucking awesome. Yeah, I mean, again, we were talking about the virtues of miniatures with Flash Gordon, and I love the miniature of the haunted house yeah, the collapsing in on itself. Yeah, so good. Yeah, throughout. good sound, too. I thought it was, like, uh, very effective. It, it felt real. Another gag that we kind of missed that, that does precede this just a little bit, now that I think about it, is when I think it's the cops show up because oh, they think yes. something's going on, mm-hmm. and then they set the dogs, the three big dogs, on the on the cops. Yeah. They're like mastiffs. They're huge. Yeah, and so they're, like, eating them alive, and there's this fantastic gag where they must have been putting, I think, little treats, because you can kind of see one at one moment, on a, a, plain, a piece of glass in, in front of the lens. And yeah. you've got the dogs, like, biting and licking the glass, like the lens of the camera itself. And that's very William Castle. We feel like we're being eaten alive yeah. by those dogs. There's some gnarly gore effects, too. Like, the guy's throat being ripped out, like... Yeah. Gross shit. Even on. though, like, I'm watching the dogs and they're just giving those guys a whole bunch of little kisses. Yeah, like, <laughs> 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 they look like really sweet dogs and they were trying yeah. so hard to make them into these, like, hellhounds. But, like, anytime they were called on <laughs> to do, like, violence for the most part, they were so sweet. They were, like, so gentle about it. And those guys yeah, yeah. are writhing to sell it, you know? <laughs> I loved it. They had a pretty yeah. high body count. Yeah, yeah. They did. You know, it occurred to me that Curse of the Crying Woman is uh, up all night canon. Oh, yeah. Isn't it one night? It is. One crazy night? One mm. crazy night, dude. It's it's four hours. Yeah. It's We find out it's four hours to midnight in a one hour and 20 minute 
movie that feels like it's 15 hours long, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's up all night if I ever saw it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and again, going back to our, you know, sort of a place where we began, it's like, again, if we're going back into the the poetics of space and of these rooms, right? Uh, In The Curse of the Crying Woman, it ends in the bowels of the house and it collapses in on itself, right? This this legacy of generational evil, it just implodes at the ending and it, it all comes crashing down. Yeah. And in, you know, the ghost and Mrs. Murr, we're upstairs. We're, we're not necessarily in the attic, but we're in this, this open room that looks out onto the sea, this place of of dreaming and of possibility and of freedom and love and hope. And it ends with them sort of her, I guess, ascending out of this room into her heavenly body and then out the front door into this this now eternal, eternal possibility of, totally. of a relationship. Yeah, instead of seeing her ascend, we see Aunt Selma crushed under a chandelier and then we see the generational evil decaying in like a time lapse so good the way her body dissolves under that and turns from like worm infested you know corpse into just pure bones very very cool like that a lot yep well, I hope uh, we cooled you down. You get some of that seaside breeze I brought you. Absolutely. I mean, it. Yeah, it. It. It was a. It was invoking October for sure. Both of these movies. And while I watched them, I was definitely like, you know, bundled up in a in a sweatshirt in the cool air of the basement of of my apartment. Uh, but boy, while we're recording this, we're <laughs> we're we're in the hot <laughs> studio and. Uh, not a lot of cool vibes in in here, that's for sure. But no, yes. just in our memories. Just in our memories, in our daydreaming. Yeah. Well, are there any other cinematic houses that uh, you would be interested in renting for an extremely low price because of uh, its haunted quality? Well, it's interesting that you say that um, because you know uh, something that I I want to recommend to the viewers. You know, I I, I guess. It, I previously I had mentioned in one of our other podcasts, uh, uh, one of my I think probably my favorite like haunted house movie, which is uh, starring Roddy McDowell, The Legend of Hell House, and and that is just for me it's it's like when I think of a haunted house movie, I think of The Legend of Hell House, the the gothic architecture. I mean, it is just every frame is just dripping in that that feeling, that atmosphere of a cursed space. And I love that movie. I, I think it's great. Uh, uh, objectively. Quintessential. It, yes. Yeah. Yeah. A must, must see. But the other thing that I really want to recommend, and I think I've mentioned this movie to you guys before. Well, movie, uh, it's actually a series of films. Uh, and that would be the, the bad Ben franchise. Um, how best to describe bad Ben? Well, it was a movie made for $300 by some dad in New Jersey who, oh, who decided yeah. he I wanted remember. to make haunted house movie, a haunted house movie, and no one would finance it because he was not a filmmaker. I mean, he clearly bought like filmmaking for dummies and just decided like, fuck it, I'm going to make it on my own. And so he shot in his own house in New Jersey, some shitty suburban house in New Jersey and made 
a hilariously entertaining series of films. And, and by series, I mean, uh, to this point now in 2023, he's up to 11 movies in the Bad Ben extended universe. This guy, uh, his working name is Nigel Bach, but his real name is like Tom something. But the movies are directed. He chose like a, a pen name of Nigel Bach. But like the first movie, Bad Ben, uh, and they're not all great. Some of them are really good. First one is is so funny because the premise is that he's just some guy who bought a house and his goal is to flip it. And when he gets there, it's like cursed and haunted. But the 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 energy that he brings to this this movie and the and the performance, which is by the way, just him. There's no one else in this movie but him. Uh, Solo cinema, dude. It is. I I I cannot describe how how engrossing this is because the way he plays it, and I think it was unintentional in the first movie, is just like imagine your dad like confronted by a haunted house, but right. not scared, <laughs> just pissed off and annoyed the whole time. Like that is that is the 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 sort of like the juice that Nigel Bach brings to it. And it is, I mean, laugh out loud funny. I, I gotta say, if if you want to, folks, just dive into the Bad Ben franchise and and you will have such a blast with this like Home Depot dad putzing around and haunting himself. You know, really that's it. Because this is like the ultimate DIY cinema. And and he goes into like wild places with some of the later films. Like one movie's a multiverse movie. I mean, he he just he's he's all over the place. But yeah, there's something about him. He's so he's ugly, he's frumpy, he's bald, he's fat, but he is just so compelling the whole time. And I think it's because he feels so real. So yeah, the Bad Ben movies are are a fucking blast. Highly recommended. So uh I was up this week and and that's that's what uh, we had for this one. Uh, Marsh, you alluded to something in our intro, so we might as well suss this out for the viewers. What do we got? Yes, we have mail. You've got mail. Um, we have mail. <laughs> mail call. We've got mail um, from Matthew Dennison. He writes, howdy. First things first, I'm the less well-read, less cynistique. And younger brother of earlier two-time letter writer Tim Dennison. You can thank his good taste and generosity for introducing me to what I find to be the best artistic representation of hanging on a sofa with friends on a summer evening with the windows open, watching movies, beer, and conversation. Truly, thank you for sharing your friendship and journeys of exploration with us listeners. Aww. Aww. As someone that goes out <laughs> on a limb with friends sharing my, quote, connections and can take teasing rather well, I'm the youngest of my brothers, I empathize with Ryan and his periodic venture into literary corner and the good ribbing he gets. It's like I'm on the sofa with y'all. And so, speaking of media setups, I was thinking about games as a launch point for a prompt. You have periodically talked about video games, and I have wondered how the gauntlet might consider games in light of movies. 
Specific games like game shows, baseball, and even boxing have been used previously, but in this case, I was thinking more like board games, video games, card games, etc. I was thinking about being fancy and using Johan Huizinga's definition of play, or Bernard Suit's theory of games, e.g. playing a game is the voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary obstacles, or even squishy and sometimes too D&D for its own good idea of the magic circle as a launching point. But I will defer and leave it to the bright cinematic minds of the gauntlet to make a useful prompt. If you want something simple to play with, how about bring me movies that are about play, or games, and the special space they hold in our lives. Balancing both trivial and meaningful, purposelessness with purpose. Whether this prompt is useful or not, I want to leave you with just the simple thanks for making Tuesday a highlight of my week, as well as making longer truck drives better with gauntlet mixtapes. Thank you, Matthew. Hell yes, thank you, Matthew. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard the whole letter. Marsha just sent me the prompt in advance um, and was sort of an open call, like, who wants to who wants to take this? And I got to say, I want to take it. Yeah. Um, I think it's a very fun prompt. I don't even think I need to revise anything. I know, Matthew, you sort of asked, like, oh, you can kind of, like, spin this however you want. Oh, we will. I think... And well, we will, we will. But I, I'm not going to put any extra rules on it, is all I'm trying to say. Uh, I, I think it's a very rich prompt. I think it allows for a lot of creativity. So I say next week, let's take a look at the state of play. And uh, I'll leave it up to you two to kind of take us on a new journey. Let's go. Let's do it, man. Uh, as always, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple... Uh, X, uh, <laughs> etc. Uh, and like I said earlier, send an email to Marsh's Mailbag at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Don't trouble yourself, my dear. It's not your fault. I should have known it was on the chart. You've made your choice, the only choice you could make. You've chosen life as it should be, whatever directly. And that's why I'm going away, my dear. I, I can't help you now. I can only confuse you more and destroy whatever chance you have left of happiness. You must make your own life amongst the living. Whether you meet fair winds or foul,
morning and the years after. You'll only remember it as a dream. And it'll die, as all dreams must die. You'd have loved the North Cape and the fjords and the midnight sun. And to sail across the reef at Barbados where the blue water turns to green. To the Falklands where a southerly gale rips the whole sea white. What we've missed, Lucia. What we've both missed.